everybody, this is another episode of the Profound Podcast. We sort of look for sort of shoulder giants. It starts with Deming, but it goes into Ono, it goes into Lean, it goes into Gorat, all that good stuff. So I say this every time. I, you know, it's one of my favorite guests. I guess they're all my favorite, but this one, this guest is rather, rather special to me. Josh, you want to introduce yourself? Oh, I don't even know what to say. Hi, I'm Josh Corman. I have a lot of hats. I met you through Gene Kim, but I was trying to push some Deming software supply chain, some Deming supply chain principles into modern software development. But I'm also a founder of IamTheCavalry.org. It's a group of about thousand plus hackers trying to save lives through security research. All volunteer, just trying to make the world a safer place as the world is increasingly depending on digital infrastructure areas where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. And we've had lots of great conversations about that, but right now I should disclose and caveat that I'm in the 11th of 12 months of emergency public service as an act of Congress to, to help with the pandemic response. So I'm in CISA, the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, the newest federal agency focused on risk management and critical infrastructure and national critical functions. So Congress said, here, go hire a bunch of massively multidisciplinary talent from the private sector to help make sure our pandemic response protects U.S. interest in human life. So the director at the time, Director Krebs, called me and said, do you want to serve your country for a year? It feels like it's been 10. <laughs> so <laughs> believe it or not, I am on a daily basis weaving in things I learned from Deming, from Goldrat, from you, from Gene, from the Phoenix Project Tribe in work for saving human life. It's, it's crazy. So I think we could touch on some of that, but my comments may not reflect those of my uh, employer or the federal government, but I can at least at a high level give examples of how transformative some of those principles have been on now national security levels. It's amazing. You're, um, you know, I think, I, I, I think about my, I think I've shared with you, my brother-in-law was a fighter pilot base commander. He flew in both Iraqi wars and, and I, I was so honored that what, what he does for our country, I, you know, the stuff that you've done, you know, we've had these conversations. I'm so proud to know you, honestly. You know, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll do some show notes to points and some of the discussions we've had in DevOps Cafe podcast about work you've done in I Am the Cavalry. And you, so, behind the scenes, you 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 save lives, and like I get to hear these stories. Some of them we can't share, but some of them we do. What you know? And you know, and it's just been amazing stories throughout. And and I, I think about you. You mentioned how we met, right? Which was, I was at Docker, and I was you know, I I was like this like we have to insanely deploy billions of containers to thousands of millions of clusters. And, and I knew in the back of my mind, like there was, there was, you know, I was fearless when, you know, you set up this presentation, you know, you got like 99 things. Perfect. But there's that one thing, if somebody asked that question, you know, you're just like, it won't happen, but Oh, if it does. And I was in the back of my mind had this, like, what if somebody asked John, that's great, but how are you going to manage all the things and so I'm giving this presentation, you know, and it gotten away with nobody had asked that question. And then we're in Austin and, and I'd given my presentation and, and I think you, you're the next presentation. And you started talking about Toyota supply chain and, and bill of materials. And I'm like, my God, that's the answer. That is the, now I can do this and answer that hundredth question. So we knew each other, but this is, I grabbed you and I said, I said, man, we have to co-present on something on this. Yeah. Like, and I never, co- I used to co-present with Damon Wagner, but I never got like, we have to co-present. And we did our peanut butter or guns, germs and steel and peanut butter meets chocolate stuff. But oh yeah, you, yeah. you, you had nailed, I mean, that whole idea of like, I'd always talk about lean and DevOps and agile and lean, but the whole Toyota supply chain and the bill of materials and, and like you had that clearly before anybody I knew saw that we had to do that. And so there's some like really cool history there. Yeah. I, 
you know, everyone's recently asking about what's the oral history of SBOM or software bill of materials. And it's a little different depending on who you ask. I can at least give some of the beats, which is when you and I were meeting for me, like the aha moment, I always cared about cybersecurity, product security. I kind of bleed blue or purple. You know, I'm not so much the breaker. I'm the, the fixer or the defender want more defensible, reliable, maintainable things. And most of our digital infrastructure isn't very stable. I, one of the other things I did before Cavalry is I wrote that rugged software manifesto as a response to the agile manifesto. And I just said, look, we societies depend on steel and concrete and they're dependable. Like we don't sit in perpetual fear that the building's going to collapse upon us or the bridge we're driving over is going to, you know, fail or tunnels going to crush us. It's reliable but we're increasingly depending on software and digital infrastructure. It's not nearly as reliable. It's, in fact, it's infinitely hackable. So I already wanted to improve product security and software security. And there's lots of ways you can do that, but they're not real scalable and they didn't get very adopted. But I was at Akamai uh, before I met you and it was July 13th, 2013. And a bunch, you know, banks always got hit by something. You know, there was hacking but it used to be like one bank at a time. Right. And that day, tons of banks got hit by a, an Apache Struts 2 vulnerability. And I leaned to my coworkers that day. I said, the world just changed. And they said, how can you possibly know that? And I said, yeah. it's open season wow. and open source. Yeah. And they said- Ironically, mm-hmm. Struts 2, right? Which is in the- <laughs> I know. Vein of our, you know, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. But it's uh, that day I realized, why would any attackers attack bespoke custom code? in one bank's website when they can hit everybody and rinse and repeat because it's not easy to get off of those and you wouldn't get off of those. So it just felt like a key moment. I mean, a couple other people like Jim Routh and the ISACs and things kind of noticed that too. I I shifted pretty quickly to say, this is the new constraint because I had a mentor who made me read the goal. And I'm like, why are you making me read this terrible book? And I read it. He said, he's the same guy, right? <laughs> he's no, it wasn't Gene. It was, oh, it wasn't Gene. Uh, no, it was way before I. But Gene made me read the goal. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, this guy at IBM years prior made me read this. He said, why are you making me read this book? It's just, it's, it's so simple. It's like manufacturing. I'm a cyber guy. He said, this guy changed manufacturing forever. You're going to yeah. change cyber forever. You need to know how. Wow. So. Here I am looking, I'm doing Intel, I'm working on anonymous and hacktivism. And I'm like, you know, the 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 constraint is gonna be we have no idea what software we're using because these banks, they all got hit. They all quickly, as quick as they could, said, Where are we using this vulnerable version? How do we get rid of it? And they cleaned up. But a couple of weeks later, they all got hit again yeah. because their routers got them, because they were using Apache Struts or their IBM WebSphere or this or that. So they just got hit again and again. And I said, you can't manage, you know, you have to know what you have if you're going to manage risk. So I looked closer into it. I became more familiar with Maven Central. And I, based on the more things I kept saying, I got recruited into Sonatype because they were the custodians of Maven Central, Maven Central and yeah. the Java ecosystem. And I said, I want some data. I want to see who's pulling which projects when they have vulnerabilities, yeah. how quickly are they updating? I wanted to like clear for everybody. I mean, most people would probably know this, but most of the enterprises, a high percentage of their development code is Java still today. Thanks. Yeah. Which is, you know, Maven Central is what 85% of all that activity or something like that, right? Some high percentage. Yeah, it's not everything. So I I head over to be their inbound CTO and want to do some data science and look at it like an epidemiological problem. Mm, yeah. Who's using which stuff and how good is their hygiene? On the first week in the job, there's all these congressional testimonies going on. I'll try to speed this story up, but- No, no, it's great. Uh, there, All the testimonies where healthcare.gov had launched and everyone's wondering, is it hackable? Is it hackable? Oh, yeah. And I said, oh, I can answer this. So I looked at the contractor. I looked at their polls. I looked at how many known vulnerabilities there were. And there were hundreds of full remote code execution flaws potentially in that website, which could get you into IRS.gov or this or that. So I went to leadership and I said, do you mind if I talk to Congress or HHS? They're like, well, we're kind of a small company. It's not really our thing, but what do you want to do? And I said, I think there's a problem here. Like I'd like to warn them quietly. So we start warning them and they're they're like, this can't be possible. There's NIST 
coding standards. Anything sold to the federal government has to follow these secure coding standards. There's no way that this could be the case. I said, I think there's a gap. I think it's, I think it's the code you write, but 95% of the code here is assembled from third party. So they, they, that, that week they filed a congressional research study to see if I was right. Took a couple of weeks and it came back on April first, first or second week of April. And as the report says, yes, there's a gap in the law, Heartbleed in OpenSSL proved it to everybody. It took six and a half weeks for the federal government to figure out, am I affected? Where am I affected? It was a mess. So that you know motivated some people on the Hill in a bipartisan way. They drafted a bill that year called the Cyber Supply Chain Management and Transparency Act. It said, if you sell to the federal government, you have to do three things, provide a software bill of materials, a machine readable software bill of materials, that bill of materials should not contain known vulnerable libraries unless you have a good reason. But because future vulnerabilities will emerge all the time, you should also be patchable. So tell us what's in it. Shouldn't be known bad. Be patchable. Well, it was right December of 2014 or so when that came out. And the large software vendors hated it. They wanted to kill it with fire. Descended upon Washington. Screamed. They were terrified by this notion of transparency. And they successfully, you know, spooked everybody. So it kind of didn't do much for a little bit longer. They, they rewrote the bill, but they never really re- reintroduced it. Well, fast forward and in, in, in 2015, they passed a law called the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act of 2015. And one of the things they required was a congressional task force on healthcare industry cybersecurity. And in that, I got named as one of 21 um, task force members because of my work with I and the Cavalry and the Food and Drug Administration and helping them get their feet under them on cybersecurity regulations for medical devices. And you and I have talked before about how we got them to do the first recall before anyone got hurt for right. bedside and infusion pump. Death or something like that before they would pull it. And you, yeah, I think yeah. just that alone, how many people's lives were changed. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we, we didn't want to wait for dead people to, yeah, to right. start, start the fix. And, and luckily some courageous people in FDA did the right thing before harm. And so anyhow, we're in this task force. We start, we're about to start the first meeting and back to this software supply chain thing. There's a virus out there, ransom worm called SamSam. It's using a Java deserialization flaw, like the Foxglove stuff, in a single JBoss library, in a single medical technology. And it hit, and people got warned, but it hits this hospital in LA called Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. Right. April 2016. And it, it maybe it was March, March or April, and it shuts down patient care for a week. Yeah. They have to defer ambulances. I remember talking to you about this. Oh. You were scared. And almost like, I'm like, I, I love Josh. I, I want to talk to him, but he's going to scare the heck. You, you know, you, you would tell me how you were trying to tell generals, like, let me tell you the what if scenarios. Yeah. That if you could expand on, you know, taking down multiple hospitals and, and yeah, yeah you know. So that one hit one hospital. It was scary. They canceled surgeries. They moved critical care patients, which is a risky maneuver, totally. but it was an accident. And after that, the ransomers are like, oh, wait, we can do this for on purpose. So very quickly, hospitals became the number one target for ransom in 2016. So we really focused our task force on how do you keep not just privacy of patient records, but protect human life and patient care delivery. So we had quite a few recommendations in there. One of the most bold was, hey, uh, if you had a software bill of materials for medical devices, then that hospital would have said, I have 20,000 devices, which 20 right. might have JBoss. So we uh, we put that as one of our top recommendations. A week later, like as the thing was, was printing, it was Mother's Day weekend, 2017, and WannaCry took out 40% of the hospitals in the UK for Mother's Day weekend. So Congress felt pretty motivated and they mm-hmm. said, we really like this recommendation. FDA, go do it. Require a software bill of materials. And what that did is it scared the bejesus out of the Chamber of Commerce and the Software Trade Associations. And they went to Commerce Department and said, hey, if, if we're not careful, FDA is going to define an accidental de facto standard for SBOM. And when it doesn't go badly, we may have an ill-fitting one. For other software, can you guys do intervene? So, Commerce Department under this great guy named Alan Friedman in NTIA, the, the president's advisor on telecommunications, he does these multi 
stakeholder convenings, voluntary best practice things. And he, they, they kind of put heads together to the FDA and said, Hey, if we come up with a standard in time for you to use it, you know, would you use it? She said, yeah, if it meets our requirements, if you come up with a voluntary best practice standard, we'll use it. So we had this harmonization opportunity and a lot of those very same large vendors who hated the idea said, we better at least get to the table and influence it. So for the last three years, that started July, three years ago. So we're almost at the three-year mark of that. And um, a lot of the excuses started to melt away, had a healthcare proof of concept, now have an automotive one, an energy one. We define minimum standards and it's a lot of tools now. There's three different standard formats that can support it, SPDX, uh, Cyclone DX, and SWID. They're all translatable. There's a ton of tool chains doing it. So it seems like it was kind of getting its footing, but then the real difference maker is this uh, new presidency, the, off, the office of the president, um, National Security Council kind of said, hey, we had these solar winds attacks. We've had a lot of supply chain risks attacks. Um, we don't have trust in our software. How do we improve trust and transparency? And when you're talking about trust and transparency, you have to talk about software bill of materials. And so it's this idea whose time has come. I've been saying like Game of Thrones, like winter is coming. I've been saying transparency is coming for years. Well, now in the executive order, if you want to sell to the federal government, there's uh, some definitions being finished by the end of this month by NTIA on minimum SBOM requirements for federal procurement. And I think different parts of the gov are going to put it into acquisitions. So by using the power of the purse, if you want federal business, you're going to have to be able to have a machine readable SBOM. And by virtue of those federal products being purchased, it's not like those vendors are going to make different products for the rest of the markets. The rest of the market's going to get a nice nudge to have these more available. And, you know, it feel it really feels like we've crossed the chasm here on a really good idea that stems all the way back to Deming. There's still fear and weeping and gnashing and teeth, the people who are afraid of it or think it's going to, you know, be too costly. And, and then what they, what they really don't realize is its roots were in making higher quality, more profitable, you know, more efficient manufacturing. A bomb is a business enabler, not a drag. And it just so happens to have collateral benefit for risk management. So it's been a long journey. I mean, depending on who you ask, it started 10 years ago or 12 years ago under different names. But I think in the policy arena, this push started with that Apache Strats flaw. Mm -hmm. And we've now got a large and growing coalition that made it ready enough to be used for federal defense. I need to be clear too, because I work for a vendor too. So my opinions are my own and only. (laughs) Um, I normally haven't said that for 30 years, but the, you know, one of the things I I think a lot about is that in general, you know, when I look under the covers of almost, you know, I think software has gotten a, a, you know, sort of a pass, right? Yeah. In a lot of ways, like if you look at financials, I'm not saying the fintech and financials are perfect, but they do have some teeth that bound them in different ways, right? You know, with some of the compliance, PSI, DSS, other things that sort of creep into, at least they nominally have to create abstractions of proof of regulatory control. Healthcare to software, in my mind, has no regulatory. But really, you know, to the point of like what, you know, like, you know, a bank can basically lose its license or, you know, you know, patients can die or, and 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 so to that extent, I think that the the cobbler's children have been just terrible hygiene. I mean, I got to get an inside look a little bit at what Solowinds was doing, right? And I don't think they're any worse or any better than almost anybody else in the industry who delivers software. Most the hygiene, right? I yeah. mean, yeah, the there, there is an application security market, and there has been, but. When you look at the spending and you've gotten fully integrated in the cyber community since I met you, when you go to something like OWASP or you go to the RSA conference, went, there was one year I made a chart, 80 billion was spent that year on cybersecurity, but only 0. 0.5. Yeah. Half of you know, half of that of one of those 80 billion was spent on product security, on software security. It was mostly spent on networks and endpoints and antivirus and you name it. So the tiny, 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 tiny minority was spent on the most attacked thing. So it was already upside down right? proportionally. But 
There's also no liability for harm from software products like you would have for physical products. Right. And people right. want to keep it that way. And they're terrified of introducing any accountability. But we're at a point now where any industry, whether it's cars or restaurants or medical that can take human life, needs some minimum hygiene, minimum accountability. Yes, it costs money to bleach your counters in the restaurant, but you can't have a commercial restaurant if you can't keep the rats and the and the botulism out, you know, and the E. coli. Like you have to have institutional trust. And I think what's happened is we've been on borrowed time. And with so many rampant failures in critical infrastructure and digital infrastructure, it's not just a company getting breached, it's national critical functions like you know, look at all the hacks this this year alone. Yep, Drinking right. water. Yep, you know, with yeah. we, we have compromised. They somebody dumped poisonous levels of lye into a water treatment facility. Yeah, gas pipelines shut down through ransom. Hospitals like UVM down for meat packing. It is you know yeah, I mean, meat packing. Yeah. I don't pay too much attention. You know, I look at the, the major breaches and I try to sort of. I know this sounds terrible, but I'll DevOps them. You know, I mean, I'll look at Equifax or Capital One and I'll say, you know. How do the principles of how I try to help organizations transform what happened here? Have to yeah. learn. But, you know, I was doing a little bit of deeper dive into, you know, so I guess it was some of the CrowdStrike stuff and, and I was reading it, you know, and I like, and like, you know, just that, that the one, the guys that took down the colonial pipeline, right? Like 15 billion a year in revenue. Like you said, in early days, it was like ransomware was like some thing. Now it's like, these are, massively scalable businesses you know again i don't we can sidestep the geopolitical you know points about that but this is you know this is serious yeah, stuff. yeah i wouldn't get into any of the specific details of the outside of public knowledge i would just i think i'm just remarking at the phenomenon that ransom has become ransom crews have become more brazen they're going after more serious targets they're asking for more money it's you know ransomware as a service business model. So it's it's pretty bad. In fact, I I think it's kind of just we've always been prone, we've always been prey, we just didn't have you know sufficient predators with sufficient appetite mm-hmm. and that's changed. We, they're here now. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So I think this accountability, you know, a lot of people will point out including myself that an SBOM would not have prevented right. some of these high profile breaches. And you know, one you already mentioned, but I think it's been the tipping point of we need more trustworthy and transparent supply chains and some more accountability. And one of the most shovel ready and tractable ones is to add that necessary visibility that's been proven, you know, in manufacturing and chemicals and food for so long. It's time to have it in software. Well, even you talked about the restaurants, the restaurants have those you know, health scorecards, right? And like, there's a, there's a line I'm quite fond of (laughs) in the executive order that bears reading out loud. It says in the end, the trust we place in our digital infrastructure should be proportional to how trustworthy and transparency, transparent that infrastructure is and to the consequences we will incur if that trust is misplaced. But that proportionality of trust and transparency sorely men missing and this will not fix it all in one fell swoop but there's other things in there like you know prove to us you have a rigorous security program for your software factory this is the phrase they use but you know prove to us that you you know do you have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program so hackers can tell you about flaws sooner and bad guys taking advantage of them. There's a, there's a series of confidence building measures outlined. You know, from outside looking, so the, again, I agree. You, we've been talking about you sort of introducing me to this concept when we first met, like why don't we have a bill of material, you know, the simple like, you know, manufacturing knows where all the type of breaks that are out there. So if they have to do a recall, they know where they are. You yep. know, we've been tremendously bad in software, either, yep. you know, software delivery, vendors, internal, about like where are all the break, you know, the, this model of breaks. And I think clearly the S bombs great. I, I wonder the two things I wonder a lot about when I go in and you know, I've been trying to understand. I, I looked what sort of MITRE as is, is producing, you know, their sort of reaction to what happened to solar winds. I've I've seen, you know, sort of the the cyclone DX stuff. I'm trying to sort of 
outside looking in, trying to figure out all this stuff, right? And the one thing I see, you know, you know my approach. My approach for good or bad is it's all about, you know, I hate to say this, it's the DevOpsing or the DevSecrets, which is a terrible way to describe things, but it's this hygiene mm-hmm. that starts with making sure that we have repeatable pipelines that are immutable that can be you know pipeline is code can they all the things we've learned you know this is what devsecops is all about right how do we take all the wonderful things we did in devops mm-hmm. we tried to trade everything that could be in a source repository we tried as much as possible to be sort of push button to delivery yep. we tried to make sure we could build in all the the sort of the 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 the, the manufacturing concepts of and on ish things all that stuff. And as I read a lot of discussions of what, you know, from my view in of, you know, what, what sort of the OWASP, uh, Cyclone DS or the NTIA is doing and, and what, you know, sort of how NIST is sort of bouncing this bouncing ball around, around mm-hmm. this whole subject. It looks like they're missing the forest beyond the trees, right? Like they, one, they seem to over rotate on vulnerabilities. And there's just so much more. There's the meta stuff. Yeah, yeah. Are you doing pairing on pull requests or what's the, the, the cyclomatic complexity of your code? I mean, just, you know, all the things that I've been talking about in this automated governance structure. And I'm wondering if that we don't make this mistake where we think if we can just get everybody to agree on a format of SBOM, life will be good. And let's just wait for the next disaster. I I hear you. And I think I've been a co-chair for this NTA thing since the beginning. In the first phase, it was, we did use cases and practices and at ntaa.gov slash SBOM. If you look at the roles and benefits document, we have plenty of benefits in there that aren't about vulnerability management. They're about, you know, some of the Deming improvement principles. Yeah, I think NTA is better than most, to be honest. It might just sort of outside looking in summary is. I think think it's a fair if I'm hearing you correctly, it's fair that there's a heavy focus on vulnerability management, definitely for MITRE, because that's part of their mission. Right. But, and of course, the Cyclone DX guys, they're the one that wants to put vulnerability info in the SBOM. I, I disagree with that as uh, the right system design, but but the they can still support, you know, the minimum SBOM components and, and data fields. And I think they're fast moving and gaining some traction. So I, I'm an agnostic about which format. I, I really just want machine generatable, yeah, readable, course, transformable yeah. artifacts as a natural byproduct of your CI/CD pipeline. Like as you build code, it's just frictionless. Right, it's yeah, right there. Right. So I am agnostic as to which denomination of SBOM gets picked as long as they are trans compatible, trans translatable, et cetera. Now, um, but yeah, a lot of the heat and light and talk is about security, but I, I just gave a keynote today at Borderless Security and it's largely some open source folks. And and I said, I think while everyone's weeping and gnashing teeth and saying how horrible this is and oppressive, I don't think they realize that all of my early adopters were financial services people trying to save millions of dollars oh, okay. in productivity, yeah. like less, less break fixes, less unplanned, unscheduled rework. Master, faster mean time to identify and repair. You know, the, the Deming trio, I haven't said this in a while, but the Deming trio of use fewer and better suppliers of parts, That's right. use the least the, the highest quality parts from those suppliers and track which parts go where throughout manufacturing so you can do prompt and agile response. That everyone's so focused on, there's going to be a lot of vulnerabilities in number three. And I said, initially maybe, but I think what you're going to start to find is just like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the act of observation alters the observed. And then what we're going to do is say, man, this, this logging framework that we use is constantly broken. Is there a better one? (laughs) Yeah. And you talked about this, like about how, you know, you you started earlier in the healthcare.gov, like had what, you know, like. At 11, 11 logging frameworks. frameworks, You know, and you know, you you look at a country like Google and I'm not saying Google's right about everything, but. They had this. If you read some of the early SRE or some of uh, some of the other writings of people who left Google, they talked about like they they had two of everything, you know, two kernels, two like, and they even had teams that would force you. You know, we used to talk a lot about this in early days. Yeah, I think in our talk together, I, I mentioned one of the biggest software producers in the world. I mean, 
well, most of the biggest software producers in the world are banks, financial right. services. One of the biggest that had more code than Apple, Google, Microsoft combined, they had 81 versions of Spring in production concurrently yeah, out of 86 at the time. 81. Yeah. Can you imagine how brittle, fragile, yeah, yeah, yeah. clunky that operation was? So I think well, reeling this back in, I had to remind people today that not only is this good for security, it's really good for business, right? In general, yeah, yeah, yeah. Complexity is the enemy of all the things. Traceability, auditability, you know, governance. Are you going to see over time which suppliers are better at having fewer issues and fixing them more quickly? And by virtue of measuring it, you can manage it. And I kind of don't care how they start. If they start for vulnerabilities, or they start for license management, or if they start for product product improvements, once they have S bombs, it's a foundational enabler of so many. Use it, cases. It, it's a it's you, you can't even it's sort of you can't like you can't measure if you don't have the data you can't even begin right like you know like if you're not even you know even in the restaurant metaphor like if you don't know you're a D or a C <laughs> right how do you improve right like so yeah I think that's. Do you know Sunil? Did I ever introduce you to Sunil Yu? I don't think so. But Genius. I met him when he was at Bank of America as the chief cybersecurity scientist. He's he's over at Jupiter One recently. Oh, okay. Um, but he, when he was the bank, he, he would basically say, I want an SBOM as part of your standard procurement. It's, it's an industry standard. It helps us know if we've been impacted by a new flaw. And if they said no, he'd be like, okay it's a best practice. I'd like a concession for that. Can you give me 20% off your yeah, they, oh, that's really, contract? Oh, that's awesome. You know, and it was, there were different levers over time, but it, initially it was a binary. Like if you can't produce one, it tells me something about you. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. right? That, like that's yeah. a, you know, I was telling you earlier that, you know, Shannon Leeds is saying, if you can't like, like don't even talk to me about any, like I'm paraphrasing, but don't even sort of give me your explanation. If you can't at least show me some sort of, you know, as, I, yeah, I as, think what's, What's fair is it is so much easier to do this if you're a DevOps CICD shop. Totally. I mean, I, I think it's yeah. it's that's the part I, I worry a little about is like, you know, the the price shouldn't be the S or maybe the prize is, but they're like, you know, let's we need to be really clear about like how do we get to a meaningful S bomb. You know, I, I was thinking, I was looking for this quote as you were talking about, you know, that you know, people think about you know, this DevOps and digital transformation is about all freedoms, right? But there's a large body of work, getting work with Jay Bloom, right? You know, he's getting his PhD in design transition yeah. and, and I'm always stealing his slides, but there's this uh, complexity scientist called Alicia Guerrero. And she says, by, by curtailing the potential variation in component behavior, context-dependent constraints paradoxically also create new freedoms for the overall system. Yeah. I think that's the key that people miss, right? Is that you have to, you know, and it, and, and I think it, he talks about, you know, tragedy in commons too, right? Very similar, like that you have to put the, you know, it isn't just sort of free for all, like do whatever you want. Like there's some hard work that has to create constraints and that enables these freedoms, you know, that, when, that you will get to those, you know, people, you know, complain, well, you know, to get there, it's going to be so hard, but like, I think what some people call freedom is more aptly described as chaos and it's hard to thrive in chaos. Yeah, that's right. What we want is the confidence to move within certain parameters and, you know, complexity is the enemy of many, many things. There's some valuable complexity at times, but we have so much unbounded and unmeshed and yeah. unknown complexity. Misunderstanding, I, you know, yeah. I, I, one of my favorite quotes also is a variant of like misunderstanding variation is the root of all evil. But I think misunderstanding that you live in these complex systems and not understanding those and not sort of embracing, you know, the probabilistic journey yeah. that you have to take. I mean, that's that's Deming and Golrat, right? Like they understood. Actually, segment weighs me something else. You know, I I know we've talked a lot about. You see the principles of Golrat and Deming in the different jobs that you've had over the years. You know, sort of any insight to where that sort of, where do you see that playing out either in the past or even in the present? Yeah, I mean, I there's many examples. I mean, I'm, I'm currently in the mode of running the pandemic work for the country. 
within CISA at least, they're part of it. But I use Gold Rat constantly, theory of constraints. I, I'm just so infected with it. In fact, the other day was a particularly hard day. I won't get into, but I, I, I tweeted at you. I hardly tweet out all anymore, but I tweeted at you that knowledge of theory of constraints can be a curse. Yeah, of the yeah story I because that. I just I if I if I'm reflective on my career since I read that book, as soon as I spot the next constraint for making the world, you know, safer or putting the world at more risk, I flood towards the constraint, right? And sometimes it's public policy and sometimes it's building positive patterns of supply chain management into the DevOps ecosystem. And sometimes it's starting a cyber safety initiative for free. And sometimes it's, you know, helping on the pandemic, but I guess more recently without getting into the, you know, inside government stuff that we shouldn't, this uh, pandemic has been so twisty turny. I've used a mixture of supply chain principles, things I picked up while studying Deming and Toyota and V4L. And perhaps you heard of Operation Warp Speed. I'll, I'll pick that one for a second. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. So, Operation Warp Speed, billions of US dollars to dramatically accelerate the, the, development and distribution of vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics to save American life, protect U.S. interests on the global stage, protect the economy. So we didn't know if we'd ever make any successful vaccine. First, it would be the first in history if we did for Corona style. And we looked at the supply chain and there were like 23 that got, you know, government funding to be designated. And maybe none of them were going to work. Maybe all of them were going to work. But I ended up, you know, immediately saying, okay, I understand we're going to help them. They're big. They have resources. What about the ball bearings, you know, from World War II doctrine? What about those smaller, less obvious, less defended, but if disrupted means there's no war fighting machines. And I kind of learned all that while I was learning Deming supply chain things. Right. And once you get in that world of supply chain, I was learning those things as a metaphor for software supply chain. And here I am now applying the life imitating art, I'm now taking that software supply chain stuff and applying it to, Hey, this particular manufacturer is important to several of the DNA and MRNA vaccine candidates. And if they are disrupted, there's nobody's getting any vaccines. There's just not enough alternative supply. So we prioritized them engaged them, found out they had three IT people, zero security people. You could probably wow. sneeze on them. Wow. And there's a whole lot of dead Americans and from probably months at a time before some alternative manufacturing could be produced during a pandemic. So there were like less than a hundred of these, but an uncomfortably large number of these ball bearings. And, and I think my ability to be familiar with that turf with a bunch of other agencies and other experts hired by this congressional act you know, we were doing real, you know, proven things that were pioneered by the people you and I admire. On the theory of constraints stuff, you know, once we realized we were going to have vaccine candidates and maybe enough supply, then we're like, okay, what's the next constraint? Where else could adversaries disrupt this? And it was, okay, the cold chain, cold distribution. How do you keep cold things cold at unspeakably minus 80 degrees Celsius. So I had to become a dry ice expert with my team really quickly. We had to figure out what are the primitives that go into dry ice? Well, it's a byproduct of gasoline production. Well, we're not making much gas. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, what else about dry ice? Well, it sublimates over time and distance. So how do you make sure you can get the dry ice to recharge these vaccines so they don't expire and spoil? And then the constraint becomes misdis and malinformation, right? Information operation campaigns to get Americans not to want to take them. And that is proving to be probably the largest constraint. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Wow. so this notion of what's the most material bit right now, or what's the next one going to be when we solve for this constraint has been so clutch and key at every twist and turn. And then more importantly, Sometimes we we had a good plan and it just didn't work because government doesn't work that way. And mm-hmm. then we tried something else and it didn't work. And I was reminded of those Ravensburg puzzles you taught me, like you know, the to if you just keep trying new hypotheses, caught in the you iterate. Yeah, what is it called again? 
kata in the classroom. It's a yeah. It's a built on Mike Roth's Torta Kata. It's actually a, a three year old or above puzzle <laughs> that you put teams of five together and you go through these improvement. Kata. It's just and we had an opportunity. Not, yeah, we had not right only, there. not only the opportunity to do it at one of the places we worked together at, but we, where the all the people said, you know, I, this was fantastic. I dare you to get senior leadership to do it. And we actually right. got senior leader and to watch them sit around for two hours and build three-year-old puzzles, but realizing yeah. that there was this scientific method. It was all this stuff. You know, one thing I think is like, is amazing. And I feel sort of privileged to be part of this tribe, which was, you know, there was a ton of body of work done, obviously in Toyota Lean and all that, but basically just Toyota Park Systems. And then there was a ton of researchers who helped us understand that economy, which got coined as Lean, yes. you know, Spear and Rother, and there's lots of before those, those happened to be my two favorite. And then sort of Gene, you, me, just lots of other people who I'm leaving out translated that to software delivery in our own way, right? Like, you know, sort of knowledge economy transferring. So, sort of, and I'll go back to even Mary Poppendick writing lean software development, but then we, we took that torch and like, this is brilliant. That now you've taken that back to the physical, like it, it's this brilliant. And I wish more companies could learn that they have the physical, they could learn from the sort of physical to the, to the knowledge economy, the, the manufacturing or economy to manual. And, and it's just, it becomes at some point, it's just a way to do things. Yeah. And I, I don't, this may sound more pejorative for my federal teammates than it mean that I mean it to be in some ways you don't want radical exper experimentation in public service all the time. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But with the pandemic with four more, there was a point where there were more than 4,000 dead Americans every day. Yeah, no, and there was a point where we had mass exploitation of hospitals when there's already a shortage of beds yeah, and you know you're going to have excess deaths. In fact, we should talk about some of my estimates on excess deaths during the pandemic. But I think if we just said, oh, well, we tried what normally works, it didn't work and we give up, you just can't we, we would have had really bad outcomes. So at least the private sector people we had pulled in were like, nope. So we just did these hypothesis-driven experiments. And then after failure, after failure, after failure, we're like, we got to blow this up. And I, I remembered you in the in the, yeah, in the the puzzle saying, you need a completely different approach, like not, not small refinement, but like what's a radically different way to reimagine this work. Just to, to tell that there are points in this game where you get teams to build a puzzle in 15 seconds. Truth is nobody can ever do that. Most teams get stuck where somewhere around 18 or 20. And I remember asking a team where them like, Okay, what do you do? Well, we're the 22nd team building team. I'm like, no, no, what do you do? And yeah. I, I wanted them to tell me, you know, it's in in some it's either called a kaikaku or you know, you know, sort of a, a kaizen event where you literally have to blow it up. Like yeah. and, you, and you have to be willing to do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think people thought it was chaotic, but I'm really happy we pushed because yeah. that was a breakthrough moment. And we, we went from having a whole bunch of people resisting the protection we were offering to a whole bunch of them taking it in less than a month. And it was, I just think the tenacity, you know, the, the experimentation, it, it all blurs together. I mean, I don't know how much of this is from the Phoenix project versus from the goal versus from Deming versus from, you know, Kaizen and, but it's. I found myself drawing upon things I learned from you. I mean, you're always heaping praise on me. I learned so much from you, from Jez, from Nicole, from, you know, Damon, from Gene, of course, who brought us all together. Right, right. But your stuff wasn't just helping site reliability engineers have better cloud native code. It was saving lives during a pandemic. That's great. That's great. No, that's great. no I mean, it's just, yeah, no, it, it's, um, you know, that's why I'm always sort of your biggest fan. And again, I feel like it goosebumps down, sort of thinking that they're in, indirectly I helped, right? So, but, you know, I, I, I brag about you to basically everybody I know, you know, because, you know, I can go through some of the accomplishments that, that you've told me, some of the things that are public. And I think, you know, you just, you know, there are people that sort of, I think I said this in one quote, when, you know, when you first took that job, I was trying to explain to my family about, who you are, you know, and I said, you know, that everybody says that I'm a passionate person and I am, 
but you're a passionate person who's passionate about saving lives. And, and, you know, and, and although you look like, well, you know, like, you know, I mean, Josh is, would be your greatest CISO, you know, if you're, if you're ever looking for somebody to hire, you know, don't be fooled by his passion. This guy understands, you know, at any level for any type of organization, how to build the right type of security posture and structure of all the adversaries, you know, you know, starting back when you, you know, Akamai, you know, and then you're, you know, you know, I know the depth of what, how you understand, you know, this world. So you, you know, I'd rather see you saving America, you know, but, but, you know, like you, you, you do both better than anybody I know. Yeah. I've, we have a mutual admiration society. It's been a rough year. I mean, it, I say it's been 11 months since I started officially, but I, I think it was helping for a few months while we were figuring out how to hire us. But yeah, I, I have about a month left. I am exhausted. It's noble work. It's exhausting, but important work. And I, I find myself asking, what the heck am I going to do? Like, mm-hmm. how do I go back to not doing national security or do I maybe try to take a more permanent role in the federal government because I'm kind of addicted to it. It's tough. It's tough to put a philosopher hacker federal bureaucracy. It's there's certainly a culture clash. I remember having conversations like you just got off the phone with a senator. This is like what five years ago, right? And you're like, we've been working on this. We had everybody agreeing and now I've got this new senators like, isn't that hacking? isn't hacking bad and you're like, okay, here we go. I got to start all over again about, well, you know, the difference between sort of white hack hacking and like, you know, and I, and I, I just, I remember being on a call with you right after you probably spent two hours with some Senator. Yeah. This was what, five, six years ago, maybe, you know, uh, and, you know, wow. and you're like, John, I can't tell you that I literally had all this consensus and this new person comes in and they're like, Oh no, no, we don't want anything. Oh, that was, I know that meeting. That was a, that was a regulator. Yeah. Yeah, we were all everyone was believing it and then they said what's wrong with you why would you hack these yeah, yeah. you're endangering people hacking terrible you know yeah so i know that story that's right i mean i i think the mission's working the question is 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 it getting worse faster mm-hmm. you know since we first met you know s-bomb's been this eight-year journey but now it's an executive order of a little over four years ago that mirai botnet happened and i worked with senator warner on an iot minimum hygiene bill that passed in the law in December. So like right. we have minimum cyber seatbelts, right? Yeah. For IOT now. We've got a bunch of FDA regulations before anyone got hurt. So I'm really happy about those. The parts where I'm less happy is all those problems we found in healthcare, for example, those seams and cracks got stressed to the max during pandemic. Right. And they revealed it's much worse than we first knew. Whatever teams, yeah. And I told you I'd give you some stats. These are public stats from the Centers for Disease Control. They have a portal on excess deaths. So what most people heard by February of this year, which was about the one-year mark, we had lost 500,000 Americans to COVID. We all heard that, right? right? So you think, well, I'm young, I'm healthy, I won't have that problem. But what was not talked about much, but it's on the CDC portal, is we had 150,000 excess deaths on top of the COVID deaths. And these are treatable conditions. So an excess death is defined as the difference between expected deaths and actual deaths for that month of that geography. So if you normally lose hundred people to heart attacks in this month in this state, and you lose 150, the excess is 50. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So when we looked at the stats nationwide, the top two reasons for these deaths were people weren't trying to go to the hospital in time. So degraded and delayed patient care affects mortality rates for time sensitive things like heart attacks, strokes, about 4.4 minutes is the difference between it can increase mortality rates for heart attack based on a new England journal of medicine article on marathons, the 4.4 minute longer ride led to a higher statistical death rate in 30 days with strokes. You have one to three slash four hours to save brain and save life. So we know that those two are very time sensitive and heart attack and stroke deaths were way up. Yeah. So we said, okay, if you take too long to go, that can, that can lead to death. 
if you try to go, you can't get in because there's no beds left because we have worker shortages and bed count and ICO bed shortages, you're going to have more fatalities. And then if you add on top of it, the one that I have no patience for, what about cyber attack? Mm-hmm. And in, in the month of October, November, we had record high attacks on hospitals and probably the most famously covered was the university of Vermont medical center and 118 facilities in upstate Vermont, New York, and New Hampshire, they were down for 28 days. So they couldn't do chemotherapy. They couldn't do elective surgeries. You had to go to nearby States. They couldn't even print out your chemo cocktail because they didn't know it because it was locked up. Wow. So if 4.4 minutes can kill you and if four hours can kill you, what do you think four weeks did to the state of Vermont? And what we've been studying is, yeah, hospitals that suffered a ransom achieved stress conditions and excess death ranges faster, controlling for all other variables. So now we know even after the pandemic, there is a measurable impact on timely patient care if you can't get to your next nearest facility. So if it's more than three hours away, you should expect higher death counts for mm-hmm. strokes. So we're, we're studying, we're using a lot of the data science fund that we learned from our friends in Gene's tribe and elsewhere. And it's, but this is pretty serious stuff. And that part where we're noticing things that normal gubbies might not notice that makes me want to stay. It makes me, makes me want to attract and retain my friends to come into government. It goes back to the ball bearings, right? Which is the sort of the unintended consequences like, you know, could, you know, could sort of shortage in gasoline cause, you know, I've always said that, you know, that, you know, even go back to sort of the, just the general, if, if Uber goes down for a long period of time, it affects the world. Mm-hmm. People miss meeting. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure to the, the, the sharp edge, the knife, whether people die direct, you know, as close directly, but, but the, the cascade. Butterfly. Yeah. yeah the butterfly. Yeah, effect, yeah. Yeah. Of, of all the things that sort of get missed, you miss this meeting, you miss this flight, you miss this, you do that, you can't get home, you can't, you know, I mean, it's just, yes, the butterfly effect of, you know, we are in this sort of, you know, in some ways, glorious Cambrian explosion, going all the way back to the gene conversation, but in some ways to, you know, again, I, I maybe we'll sort of close on the, you know, one of you, I think one of the, or first, my first favorite quotes from you, which was, you know, like Mark Andreessen says, software is eating the world. And you you said, you know, I, I think of it more as software is infecting the world. I mean, it, we adopt technology. So software is just technology. That's right. yeah. We adopt technology for its immediate obvious benefit, but we don't really do the cost benefit and say, what's the, what does this really cost me? And at least early on, I gave a TEDx on swimming with sharks as a metaphor for the internet of things security. And as soon as you add software to something, you make it weak. And as soon as you connect it to the world, you make it exposed. Right. So you have these things that weren't remotely hackable from across the planet and you're making them remotely hackable from across the planet. And it's always a cost benefit, but we have to make sure that, that the dependence we place upon these is proportional to how dependable they are. Back to that executive order, this is the kind of language language I've been using for a long time now is not everything can and should be connected to the internet, right? And That's right. There's an awesome responsibility. I, you know, the Stan Lee quote I've been using is with great connectivity comes great responsibility. You know, mm-hmm. apologies to Stan Lee, but it's, uh, I think we all through software and connectivity everywhere for these digital transformations, but never realized the risks we were incurring. And now that risk is manifest in not just credit card loss or privacy violations, but right. now in our water, our food, Life. our healthcare. That's yeah. right. Safety. So I'm not anti-software. I just think we should no, start I- to hold it to a higher standard. And I think it just the transparency alone of SBOM is going to start a virtuous upward spiral. In fact, whenever I requote you on that, I always try to make the caveat that like open source and software and all this is here to stay. Like there's no going back. We're not no. anti open source. We're not anti sort of, you know, sort of evolutionary structures of what we're doing. It's just the reality tree is, you know, 
we've got to basically keep this in mind and get better and keep up. Right. Which is, that's the hard job. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's nice to have a window or a screen door on a hot summer day. Right. But it's not a really good use to put it on a submarine. Oh, great, man. I, you know, I thought this was fantastic. How, how do people get a hold of you if they sort of want to have a conversation they want to talk to you? Well, at least during, at least for the rest of the madness of the pandemic, I'm still pretty terrible at social media lately, but at Josh Corman on social media, or at I am the cavalry, C-A-V-A-L-R-Y. If you want to get involved in those things, obviously through yourself, but my days are pretty chaotic. You never know what twists and turns the pandemic is going to have. And at least, at least until mid July, I may be a little slow to respond, but you know, if I am certainly asking myself what's next. And if you have a high impact mission, I am a very mission driven guy that may be coming right back here into the federal government. And if you, this will go up probably on digital anarchist, the video side of it, but for the people who only hear the audio behind him is his captain America shield. (laughs) So he, he is captain America. man. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways we can experience harm and we will figure this out eventually. It's a, it's a hard fight right now, but I think more and more are waking up to the work that must be done. And I'm really happy to have found teammates like you and, and others in the, the Deming, Gold Rat, Gene Kim tribe to see if we can rise to meet. I, I, I find the most hope in the spirit and the pathos of that CICD DevOps community. Because if, if anybody can develop, if we need a better digital infrastructure, that's right. This is the crowd that's going to do it. They, you know, I'd say they, we, whatever, you know, we've been chipping away at learning how to do infrastructure completely different. I would just say 10 years. It's been a little longer than that, but learning how to do it right, learning how to calibrate, how to do. And, and again, I go back to that original thing. Like a lot of what we learned came from the sort of American giants who tried to describe what Toyota was doing, you know, mm-hmm. and then there were some early people like the Agile Manifesto folks, certainly, uh, Mary, I think Mary and Tom Papadik, you know, uh, really, to me, just brilliantly translating, you know, you know, lean manufacturing to lean software development. And to me, that was like this incredible breakthrough moment, which opened up, you know, everybody to really see lean very clearly as a software. And then hmm. you know, we had, then you know, people have driven incredible technology, commerce, and, and we're, you know, we're pretty... I'm not young, but most of the people in it are young and they, they have empathy and, you know, and, and it, 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 a lot of the ingredients. And then to see that being taken back, you know, for a full circle to the physical is just mm. like, if we could see that, you know, I, I'm sort of sickened by infinity loops and DevOps pictures, but, I know. but, but that is, you know, would be a beautiful infinity loop. Right. So. And maybe that is the biggest lesson of all this is it's all, it's kind of all connected. Like, Maybe I'm not a cyber risk guy. Maybe I'm a risk guy. <laughs> you know, or just you know, yeah. or it's a business. You know, it's again we go back to Deming. Deming, sort of, you know, I say Forrest Gump his way through so many. Somebody said the other day to me is, well, he did a lot of pivots. No, he didn't pivot at all. He took the same toolbox, mm-hmm. same methodology. You know, if you look at his profound knowledge ideas, he just used those whether he was doing agriculture or census or a quality training prior to World War II. Or, you know, this is sort of a funny little tidbit, not funny, it's ironic, that the class that he taught at Stanford to help America have that level of quality that probably helped us win the war, when he went over to start working with the Japanese Union scientists and, and uh, engineers, it was the same class. I read mm. this thing about Duran and said, he said, ironically, he, he didn't even change the class. So the class right. that helped us win the war was the same material that when he went over there and asked him to teach his, his methods was like dusted off and used the same stuff. So he didn't change at all. He didn't change when he went to Ford and started the, the quality revolution. And it, that's just 
like the way to look at the world through either cognitive or knowledge or or variation or systems thinking. It's just a mm-hmm. it's a template for how to solve complex problems. And by the way, everything's a complex problem. That's right. So, my so friend, I can't wait to see you in person. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's good. You know, the I keep we were talking before the podcast how how much we we realize you know our good friends. And how much I think we're all going to incredibly appreciate when we get to see each other in person again, how much we've really missed our dear friends. And, and I feel privileged to be a dear friend. You have be one of my dear friends. So namaste. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, man.